Welcome to episode 13 of the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm joined here by Bill Arsenault. Hey everyone, what's up? Uh, Bill is a fellow critic from the New Orleans area. Uh, this is a podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. Um, we have been dormant for at least a month um, trying to get this episode out. It's been pieced together over Skype. Uh, Bill was very kind to join us today. Um, what? Where can we find your uh, writing online, Bill? Well, uh, I, I tend to do a lot of... Uh, I don't like to call it tweet film criticism, but I do write uh, short bursts of reviews immediately after I see a movie uh, at Bill Reviews on Twitter. But for full reviews, I write for uh, CutPrintFilm.com. I also write for MovieBoozer.com and Occupy.com. And there's also an archive of uh, the vast majority of my previous work at BillArsenault.com. Awesome. Um, So... uh... You watch probably even more movies than I do, which is really impressive. Um, just newer stuff coming out. Has, has there any been? Has there been anything in the past few weeks that's really stood out to you? Has been particularly great. Yeah, this past weekend, um, Shotgun Cinema did a uh, film festival at the Broad Theater called True Orleans. Uh, I wasn't able to attend, but they were nice enough to give me an advanced copy of one of their films that they were showing, called Kate Plays Christine by uh, director Robert Greene. Uh, this is a kind of a hybrid documentary narrative about Christine Chubbuck, the uh, journalist who shot herself live on television back in the 70s. Yeah, and uh, it's not so much about the event itself. It's more about this acting project that this actress, Caitlin Scheel, is about to undertake, where she has to play Christine and kind of embody her and almost transform into her and understand where her mind was at and you know, all that stuff. And we see the lines blur between reality and nonfiction and fiction and uh, documentary and narrative and all sorts of different um, things just blur and come together. And it's got probably the most tense ending I've seen in a long time. Uh, I would highly recommend hunting this down. Uh, I think it's currently doing the festival tour, but... It should be coming to VOD or actual theaters uh, within a month or two. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think there's, like, more than one movie in development about that story, too. Like, I think there's a narrative film, too. There is. There is another one called Christine, starring uh, Rebecca Hall. Right. Uh, I, I don't know much about it, but I, from what I understand, it's more of, like, a biopic. Yeah. Uh, maybe they'll do it justice. I don't know. It, this is kind of like the, what I had, the comparison to Citizen Four and Snowden. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, like people, some people, especially me, were like, "Could Citizen Four uh, possibly be taken aback by Snowden? Could Snowden, you know, could Oliver Stone one up Laura Poitras?" Uh, and I was like, "I don't know. I mean, Stone hasn't really done too many good things lately. He's he's sober now. You know, <laughs> he 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 used to be like a cokehead and, uh, and and all that, and he was like." on fire because of post-war attitudes and where we were going as a country and stuff like that. Now he's just kind of a little more relaxed and, you know, in a different mindset. I'm like, well, you know, could this really do that? And and I saw the movie yesterday, Snowden, uh, and I I, I feel it's a good companion piece to Citizen Four. It doesn't quite reach the, the same levels of sheer... 
uh, anxiety and um, paranoia, but it does uh, hit upon the notes that Edward Snowden himself was trying to get out. You know, and uh, I feel stylistically it's probably Stone's best film in years. Oh wow! So uh, that when that comes out this weekend, I also recommend you go. People go see that. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, like I said, it's been probably a month since the last time we did this, so like I could probably go back and start perusing something like uh, Kubo and the Two Strings or Hunt for the Wilder People, which are probably like two of the best movies I've seen all year. But yeah. it's also been like weeks since I've seen them. Um, you I- posted on Facebook something about. Uh, being on a dry spell of, uh, <laughs> of going to movies, and so much so that you even posted movies are dead now. <laughs> yeah, I've been kind of uh, I've been kind of flipping about it because I haven't watched a movie in seven days, which is like oh, enough for me. Wow. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I watch more of the WWE Network sometimes. Yeah. Than I do. I mean, I, I still watch a lot of movies, but it's really difficult to judge like how often I watch because I'll I'll throw on the WWE Network and put it in the background while I'm doing something else. And movie, you know, I, I concentrate on when I watch it. So it's it's a little, you know, it's like hard to say like how much I consume of one thing than I do the other. Um, which is another thing. I, that's that's a word I don't like to use when it comes to movies. Consume. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't feel like I consume them. I feel like I watch them. I feel like I take part in them. You like engage with them. Engage. Yeah. Or I like uh, I don't feel like podcasts and pro wrestling could be like background noise. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing with pro wrestling, too. I, I was such a fan of it in the early 2000s that I kind of engaged with it as well. At this point, I kind of just... It's its almost like Mystery Science Theater 3000 now. I just put it on in the background, <laughs> and I can glance over it and go, Oh, wow, what a really good match. But uh, for the most part, it's its, it's just uh, atmospheric now. Yeah, we're kind of like that, too, but I, I think like once a month for the pay-per-view is when you like actually like focus... And on, like, the yeah. story they've been telling and where it's going and all that. It really depends on, uh, man, on the storylines and how invested you are in, in all of it. I'm more invested in the NXT and Cruiserweight Classic stuff than I am uh, the main roster stuff at this point. But um, they've been, they've been you know, ramping it up a little bit, so you know, who knows what's going to happen at Clash of Champions. Yeah, I'm, I'm more excited about the Raw pay-per-views than the SmackDown ones, even though I hear SmackDown's a better show. It's just too much <laughs> content. Like, I can't keep up with all of it. it yeah, no, they really are uh, oversaturating the uh, their-only market. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, if I wanted to, like, single out, like, one movie I've seen recently that hasn't been, like, kind of praised the way, like, Kubo has, um, I did yep. really like that movie Clown uh, that had Eli Roth's name stamped on it. Oh, man, the, the movie by uh, John Watts, who's doing the new Spider-Man. Oh, he is? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the one doing Spider-Man Homecoming. He's, this... a, he's a Canadian dude, right? Yeah, he, he did the... Uh, what, what happened, The story behind Clown is that he did a sort of, like, parody trailer. Like uh, Thanksgiving or something? Yeah, kind of like kind of like that. And Eli Roth actually saw it and was like, hey, you guys want to turn it into a movie? And was well, yeah, because like, they they put his name in the uh, in the teaser. They said like coming from Eli Roth. Yeah, they thought yeah. that took like a lot of balls to like put someone's <laughs> name on it. Um, and this is a well crafted movie. I, it's I, good. I, I was really impressed by it. It, was, it had a lot of visual uh, depth to it. the The camera work was really good. The framing was really good. The story itself was fine. You know, uh, it was appropriately gory and ballsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the fact that it's a clown eating kids. You know? Yeah, they they really go there on the uh, 
children murder, which is something that like a lot of horror <laughs> movies will shy away from, like even the nastier ones. Well, there was that one horror. Well, I don't know if it's a horror film. It maybe was more of like a tongue in cheek action film. Uh, I think it was uh, Danger Children at Play. I didn't even see that one. It was a trauma film, or oh, trauma well, of release it. <laughs> and there's literally a sequence where they're just shooting kids. And you see, like, blood capsules coming out of their foreheads, and there's one where, they, where a guy puts a gun in a kid's mouth, and blood sprays out the back of his head onto a smiley face. <laughs> it might be one of those things that's, like, one of the last transgressive places for horror to go. Like, everything else has been done before, but I feel like violence against children is still, like, a very touchy, sensitive kind of area. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just... Just as, like, racism and, uh, you know, like, you can't, and uh, rape itself. Well, not so much rape. I think, I think on film anyways, that there are some things you can do, some things you can't do. And um, certainly anything against children is frowned upon. Oh, yeah. You know, it's very taboo right now. Uh, or it's been taboo for decades, actually. And, uh you know, clown doesn't quite destroy that taboo, but it does because I don't think you actually see any child on screen get eaten. It's no, you see like a lot that, of the aftermath. You'll see like a kid's like guts all over the floor. <laughs> yeah, or like a, a a doll that's supposed to represent the kid or something like something that's clearly not the kid. Right. But it's supposed to be the kid, and you know, you, obviously you can't yeah just put a kid a child actor there and go okay we're gonna blow your brains out or have you fall onto a bunch of knives. And then we're going to have someone pretend to eat you like a zombie. Right. You know, the, the parents wouldn't approve, probably, uh, unless they were, like, the coolest parents on the planet. I mean, pe- people let their kids go on uh, Wonder Shows in about a decade ago, so... Oh, man. parents that, are that out a, there. That was, a, that was a messed up show, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, I, I just saw PFFR did a, uh, a short film on Adult Swim by the guy who did Uncle Kent 2 called Mops, with a Z at the end. And it was a sped-up... Uh, VHS, like it, the aesthetic was, it was a sped up VHS video copy of a B movie on like a a nightly public access Canada show, and it's about the movie's supposed to be about a lazy janitor who invents a robot that goes on a killing spree in a in a school, and uh, this is like one of the best uses of weird perverted comedy I've seen in a long time. Uh, I'm a huge fan of VHS nostalgia, and uh, <laughs> And uh, I'm just—you just got me on a rant here about PFFR and having done. <laughs> uh, they did Wonder Shows, and that was their first thing, and now they're doing Mops and. And they did uh, Xavier, I think. Was Xavier Renegade Angel—that—that's the think, show I'm talking about. I think one of the guys uh, also directed that um, Pee Wee movie from this year, and that was very funny. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. Oh, uh, it's very funny. Netflix just has too much stuff on it for me to get to in enough time. I'm still finishing Daredevil season two. <laughs> I, I want to finish it before Luke Cage, and that's just, you know, I, that's just a trial for me, man. Uh, it's like I don't want it to end. Well, um, uh, bringing it back to Clown real quick, uh, okay. I watched um, The Fly, the Cronenberg one, for the first time for this episode of the podcast. Uh, You've never seen it before? No, it, it, I don't know why. I'd seen the Vincent Price one like a dozen times, but I'd never seen the Cronenberg one. <laughs> Cronenberg uh, was the first one I saw, and uh, I think I saw it in high school or as a kid. And uh, it didn't mess me up, but it, it certainly um, it's certain it's a movie that stays with you. Suffice to say. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I think Clown does a very similar thing where it's like a very gradual escalation of 
the transformation where like yeah. a lot of monster movies you'll have this like quick almost like werewolf transformation where the guy turns into the monster and uh clown is a very like incremental step up until you get to this demonic clown monster in the last act that is just so <laughs> different from the human you start with um and i really appreciated watching those two movies close to each other um and join, joining us for that conversation also over Skype was uh, my buddy Dustin Kosky, who I know from various film spots on the internet, kind of the way I'd, I've met you. Um, okay. <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, you and I are going to talk about this movie, The Flesh Eaters from 1964. Ooh, yes. Definitely. And um, all that's coming up right now. I don't think we are welcoming him. Hey, don't quit now. Keep that lot coming to me. I mean, like, don't quit. Listen, you fool, you're in danger. Danger? Man, you are so right. We're all in great danger. Will you listen to me? Will you open your ears and listen to me? Give him the word. I'm a big man for the word. Speak it or write it or sing it or paint it on my Shut up! Shut that big mouth of yours before you wind up a scandal! Love's drying up, Matt. I don't feel it flowing to me anymore. You're not sending any more of my people! You've come too close to shore to turn back now. So you better listen closely. There's something in that water that eats flesh! I said eats flesh! People! Right down to the bone! And now it's time for our movie of the minute section. Uh, Usually this is where James and I bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Um, obviously this is Bill's first episode on the podcast, so... Uh, <laughs> He's taking it easy on me today. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was originally recommended for James. I was trying to pair something with The Fly that would kind of work as a good like monster movie. Um, and I went for The Flesh Eaters from 1964. Uh, it's this... Um, it feels a lot like a uh, old Roger Corman B-picture... Um, in its early goings, because it is from the right era. Uh, it's a very small budget, small cast. Um, I'm just going to do a quick rundown of a, uh, a synopsis. This um, okay. This uh, drunk leading lady, this Hollywood actress, uh, <laughs> and her overworked assistant uh, take a small charter plane uh, from an alpha male pilot to a, and they get shipwrecked on a small island because of a storm. Uh, there they meet an evil European scientist who is, unbeknownst to them, cultivating this flesh-eating virus that he plans to weaponize. Uh, somewhere in there, a uh, beatnik caricature <laughs> named Omar uh, also becomes shipwrecked, and the evil European uh, sort of kills them one by one uh, with his uh, virus, mostly as experiments, just to see uh, what he has on his hands and what he's working with. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I think this is an important movie uh, is because it does lure you into a familiar territory with that Roger Corman feel. Like, it feels like a beast with a million eyes, uh, something you're kind of used to. But then there's these sharp, contrasting uh, 
visual effects that are like some of the most horrific violence I've ever seen from that era of film. Um, the flesh eaters themselves, you don't really get to see what they are. They're these tiny silver, shiny spots of light on the film, but the gore of them eating flesh off the bone is this hideous uh, effect where you just see this like black and white blood oozing out of people and guts. Uh, late, late in the film, someone gets shot in the face twice and there's these gaping holes in the eyes. And I was just really struck by how campy the Roger Corman half of the film is and how much that uh, clashes with that like grosser 80s gore look. Um, so I, gotta, I guess i got to ask you, since this is your first time watching it, mm-hmm. um, what did you think of The Flesh Eaters? Oh my god. Uh, you know, you brought up Roger Corman, and I don't think Roger Corman gets enough credit uh, for his work on, on films, not just in his efficiency in making the films, but also in in daring to show certain kinds of content. Uh, one such example that I can think of off the top of my head was a movie called The Undead, which was uh, made fun of in season 8 of Mystery Science Theater 3000, the sci-fi years. Uh, and in that movie they dealt with issues like, uh, not so much issues, but uh, concepts like psychotherapy and time travel and uh, just weird things like that that you wouldn't expect. You know, if you're throwing together a B-movie, you're gonna, you're gonna, you should go for the obvious stuff normally. Like, uh, okay, just put a guy in a monster suit, have him chase some half-naked women around and, you know, end it all with uh, the man and the woman getting together looking over at a nuclear bomb explosion. You know, it's uh, <laughs> mushroom cloud footage, you know. Uh, instead, you know, he, he, he went for something a little, not just a little, very different, and many times went for very different things. Uh, now, this movie wasn't done by Roger Corman, uh, I, I don't believe, but... Um, no, this is the... Uh... This is the voice of uh, Papa Racer on the old Speed Racer cartoon directed this movie. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. That's that, that, I like that. I like how uh, these things are kind of connected to different diverse things that you wouldn't expect. You know, just it's it's kind of like um, I just saw Rob Zombie's Thirty One a couple like two weeks ago uh, at its one and only Fathom event, and E. G. Daly, who's the voice of uh, Tommy Pickles on uh, the Rugrats, <laughs> was a uh, was a bad guy character. She played what? a character. She played a character named Sexhead, uh, which was a sex clown that also <laughs> killed people. Uh, so yeah, you know, it, it, it's just funny how you can do different things, you know, and uh, be casted like for something very kind on one hand, and then something very gruesome on the other. Uh, but yeah, the Flesh Eaters. Uh, I rather enjoyed this. Uh, you could tell there were a lot of slow moments throughout, mm-hmm. where it kind of dragged a little bit. Uh, mostly because they probably had in mind this is going to be a drive-in film, and we want the audience to have a moment or two to get a snack or to make out. Uh, they want it to be a recommendation film on those, you know, purposes for those purposes. Uh, however, they also had to deliver the goods. They also had to be a genuinely gr- scary movie or somewhat gruesome or somewhat memorable, uh, or memorable rather. And uh, they 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 got they they delivered on that uh, totally. Uh, the the gore effects, the melting of skin, uh, were done shockingly well for that time period. Uh, the skeletons were a little, once they became skeletons were a little too clean, but uh, that happens early too. Like the first uh, kills you see are these like picked clean skeletons. 
uh, and the scientist sort of like fails convincing them that a shark did it. But uh, I think that's one of the things that like tricks you into not expecting that nasty gore to follow. You're like, oh, it's this kind of movie where you see this like clean skeleton wash up on shore, and then it, later it's like, oh god. The, my my immediate uh, comparison in my head was the teenagers from outer space, where uh, they zap the the char- the alien characters uh, zap people and they immediately turn into a skeleton. <laughs> it's like the flesh just rips off them. It's like that's what inspired Mars Attacks, the Tim Burton film. When they right. get hit with the rays, they just turn into a skeleton. Uh, here, while we are introduced to just a single skeleton without seeing the flesh rip off, we do get the flesh falling off. And it's the first bit, from what I remember, was when um, what, what was the hero's name? Tuck Speedman. No, <laughs> it, no, it, it might as well be. <laughs> it was it was something. Um, Murdoch. It was, uh, you know, it was an American name. Yeah, American he's like hero. the square jaw, like cliche <laughs> alpha male. <laughs> when you said alpha male, I wanted to burst out laughing. I was like, he's that's, straight that's out a of a Russ perf- Meyer movie. Is, that's the perfect uh, description for him. He's exactly that. He's always flippant with the ladies. He's always mm-hmm. uh, throwing out sarcasm, like, "Oh, great, we have to go do this," but in a little bit more of a wittier way. Uh, and he's delivering it kind of deadpan in, in some circumstances where it's like you can't tell if he's really being sarcastic or if he's acting sarcastic. Like, like yeah, another day on this movie, whatever. You know. <laughs> uh, I got no time for this. I got to do some push-ups, you know. Um, but anyways, the first scene where I see the flesh rip off that I remember was when he goes to save the movie star from the rocks because right. she goes to get her bag of liquor. And <laughs> which which made me laugh. That was that was a funny aspect of the film that she's a desperate <laughs> alcoholic, and uh, that's not funny. But I mean, the fact that they would <laughs> the way they realize. play it is funny. Like, the way they uh, play it, she's just so in love with the liquor, and she's like, I can't get in, I can't get through my day without it. So he goes to rescue her because they just realized the flesh eaters are in the water immediately off the shore, and he, and they spend like ten minutes on top of the rocks. Like he's like. Come, come to me, jump over, and she's, she's like, no, I can't do it. It literally goes on for, well, maybe not literally, but it feels like ten minutes. That's where some of the stretching happens. But he ends up getting a little bit on his leg, and we see the, do, the, the scientist guy, the German scientist guy, take a knife and start slicing off skin where the flesh eaters have started you know, melting off skin uh, in an effort to save the rest of his body. And I was like, oh, my God. This this movie took a heavy shift into into gross, you know. It was like the Green Inferno in a way, uh, where <laughs> which was a movie I quite liked, but uh, you know, it it goes it shifts from comedy and satire to extreme ultra disgusting imagery uh, so quickly that you're not quite sure. You know, like, should I be laughing at this, or am I supposed to be like genuinely shocked at the abruptness of this? Uh, here, it's a little more smooth, I would say. Uh, you know, especially as the movie goes on and as the flesh eating happens more uh, regularly uh, and the deaths come more regularly. Um, so yeah, I, I would have to say that the flesh eaters is uh, is a welcome surprise in my home. <laughs> and yeah, uh, th- that first scene I think is like a really close-up shot on the injury on the leg. Um, it really is. It, it looked like it could have been for real. Yeah, That's like you would expect scary. like a movie from this long ago to kind of cut away from that, but it, it, it it's very up close inside of it. And at, uh, the effect that they got was they poked holes in the actual film strips 
Ooh. So you get these bright flashes of light coming out of like this like hamburger meat on his leg. It's really gross and really affecting. That that's supposed that was like an effect they used to do back in in the black and white sci fi days where they would uh they'd cut like you said, they'd cut the film or scratch the film to create laser shots. Right. You know, like uh we're gonna shoot a laser out of the spaceship, but how do we do it? Oh, we just scratch the film. And cause like <laughs> lightning bolts or something. It's like that's kinda time consuming, isn't it? You know, but <laughs> Uh, whatever, you know, it, it works. And here it, it, it definitely works because you can tell it, it definitely is a special effect, but it, it gives you the impression that there is something in the water or on the skin. And uh, consi- the, this movie has a, a monster that's a lot like the monster in The Happening, which wasn't a monster at all. The monster was the wind. Right. You know, or the plants. And what can a plant do? Well, <laughs> it, it can send out you know, some weird odor or whatever that causes people to kill themselves, I guess. And <laughs> that was a weird, stupid movie, but uh, which Roger Ebert quite liked. Uh, I, th- I think for the wrong reasons he liked it, but that's just my opinion. You can even like when he's, Even when he's wrong, he's fun to read, though. Even when he's wrong, he's he kind of makes his case well. You know, like, oh, maybe I should like this movie. But then you watch the movie and you're just laughing at it at how... <laughs> how bad it is um but it kind of reminded me of that in a way in how you're using a minimalist idea you know something that you can't quite see but it's there you know oh it's in the water oh what is it is it a shark is it something big that we can film no it's microbes (laughs) yeah they don't even know what to call it they call it like the shiny stuff and the silver stuff like it's such (laughs) a vague menace and I, th- I think the funniest scene of that is when Omar first enters the frame. He's paddling in on his boat. Uh-huh. They're like, no, no, go away. Go and away, he... you dumb idiot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he keeps calling him a stupid idiot, like Chris Jericho or something. Um, <laughs> and Omar is this over-the-top caricature of a beatnik. Like, the characters in Bucket of Blood would blush if they saw this guy. Like, he is Ooh. so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and he just doesn't see that there's a threat in the water at all. And that scene... I, I think it's kind of pointing fun at itself that, like, he it, how big of a monster can this be if you can't even see what it is? Or You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's a very, like, silly character, and it's a very silly moment. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was supposed to directly make fun of the movie itself. Maybe a little bit. I think it, it was more like a shoehorned, you know, this generation needs something to kind of see themselves in because people you know, like to say that movies are kind of a mirror of the times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's throw a beatnik in there because it's the 60s. And, you know. But the problem is <laughs> but, they didn't really get what a beatnik is. Yeah, exactly. It's like the movie The Beatniks. There was a movie in the 50s or 60s called The Beatniks, which was really just a bunch about a, a, a group of, um, uh, of of punks. They weren't really beatniks at all. They were just, you know, young kids that were robbing people and mugging people and stuff. And the movie was more about the music industry than it was about beatniks. Uh, <laughs> which made it great for riffing for uh, Mystery Science Theater. I, I, I keep going back to them. But, uh, I mean, this is very yeah, that's similar seen... territory to what they usually cover. Like, I could see yeah, them watching The Flesh Eaters. <laughs> they might as well do that for the new season that's coming out on Netflix uh, next year. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, 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 the beatnik guy, that guy completely... Took me out of the movie when I when I saw it, but it then brought me back in like a minute later, just for the sheer fact that 
he was existing in this movie. <laughs> I, I thought the whole time, I thought I thought what was going to happen was the the crew that was going to deliver the sh- the new shipments to the Doctor that was going to be the new people. And then when that guy comes, he just dies immediately. Oh you know, yeah, the guy who's well, supposed well, to deliver deliver the new uh, equipment or whatever. He uh, the relief guy. He just burns up immediately, and the boat <laughs> drives off. And I was like, oh my god, <laughs> all that time for that, huh? Right. You know? <laughs> but the big thing I like I, that it can surprise you in that way, though. Like a lot of the different ways I was expecting it to go, uh, it just wouldn't go that way. Like yeah. you would think that Omar in that first scene, like the idiot with the uh, with the, the record player, would yeah. be the one that gets eaten, but he he hangs around <laughs> for a good bit. <laughs> and then and then his death. That I guess we're getting. I mean, spoilers are kind of you know we. we oh, this we, is a spoiler friendly podcast. That's it. Go for okay. It. All right, good. Uh, the, the the German scientist, who was clearly evil from the get go. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you don't land on a deserted island and meet a friendly person. Uh, it's typically someone who wants to get out of the public eye. Uh, he's just chilling, talking about the weapon of love, and uh, <laughs> I don't want to the get love nuclear... weapon, man. <laughs> I, I wanted to get into nuclear physics, man. I wanted to split <laughs> atoms. I was like, dude, you couldn't even split an apple you know but whatever uh the the scientist guy is like okay this this guy's a dummy i'm I'm just gonna experiment on his ass and and he creates a cocktail of the flesh eaters that he tricks them into drinking in the most silly of ways he's like yes we should celebrate huh and he goes to drink and (laughs) the doctor's clearly not taking a sip himself he's just kind of putting it up to his mouth looking devilishly and it doesn't work at first but then he's like he finally the beatnik guy finally stops talking like a beatnik for two seconds to acknowledge that his stomach is bursting from inside out and now he's like there's something in me oh my god it's coming out ah And, and i thought so now you're talking like a human so this whole time, it was just an act for you, right? Like, in the universe of this film, he's pretending to be a beatnik dummy, you know? And maybe in that's reality, some, like, audience revenge. Not... Like, I think maybe Omar's supposed <laughs> to be a little phony and a little annoying, and maybe you get a little pleasure out of him being eaten in that moment. That, that he is such a little twerp. So that... <laughs> and the fact that they would dedicate so much time to him really, really made made me laugh and was kind of fascinating in, in, a, in a really perverse way. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, kill, the kills come one after another after that. Uh, not necessarily from the Flesh Eaters specifically. Uh, there's the, the movie star who is... I don't, I don't remember if she was trying to seduce the, the scientist or if she was just trying to figure out what was going on. I think, but, she's, uh, trading, case, uh, I think she's trading sex for survival. That, <laughs> Because uh, er, the day before, the um, scientist says uh, – it basically makes the argument to her that brains are sexier than brawn, uh, which, yeah. I mean, that's that's not something you can appeal to somebody in a, uh, in a, in a verbal argument. Um, and she realizes that he has the upper hand. If that anyone's going to survive, it's him. So she tries to uh, sort of reopen that negotiation and be like, I'm going to be your girl. Uh, and I will basically have sex with you if you get me off this island alive. Uh, and for for okay. that for that negotiation, he basically just stabs her. <laughs> yeah, and with a Dracula uh, stick, you know, the stick that you stab Dracula with, he, he stabs her <laughs> with, and uh, uh, that really that for that specific weapon kind of surprised me. I was like, why does he have that? Uh, I guess I guess it's a stake, so he could use for tents. 
But still, it was a stake nonetheless. And I thought, well, couldn't he just throw the flesh eaters on her face? You know, like, <laughs> why does he got to do this? And then he just buries her for temporarily until she comes back to life all of a sudden. Uh, was that because of the flesh eaters or was that just a surprise at the end? Uh, when she comes back alive? Yeah. Uh, I think that was uh, I think that was just a surprise. Like I think that he thought he could just sort of tuck her away. She wasn't fully dead, so she comes back to life uh, to get her revenge. Well, he stabbed her right in the heart. I mean, right. I, I guess if they if they could explain that it wasn't alcohol that she was uh, addicted to, that it was cocaine, <laughs> then they could use the Scarface theory because Scarface got shot like a million times, and it took the shotgun blast to the back to kill him. But he was getting shot like a million times in the, in the front, and it was because he had that rush of cocaine in him that was keeping him alive for at least for a few extra moments. Uh, so they could make that argument that she snorted up a bunch of cocaine, you know, after she got stabbed or something, or before she got stabbed, uh, which would have made this movie even more perverse because instead of a movie shoot she's going to, she's going to a drug deal. <laughs> and in her suitcase, it's not alcohol, it's cocaine. After watching DiCaprio crawl through the the snow after getting attacked by a bear, I, I can pretty much believe anybody coming back to life in a movie. <laughs> well, he didn't die. I mean, he just got severely injured. I think uh, I think that's a low key zombie movie. I'm not I'm not sure he survived that bear attack. That that's an interesting theory. I, I'd like to. <laughs> that's something that's worthy of ex- exploration. I think uh, the Revenant. You know, but yeah, the flesh eaters, man. I mean, uh, well, I'll, when she comes back from the dead to stab him is when they discover the weakness of this monster they created. Oh uh, yeah, got, like he kills her again, and then they're like, "Let's team up to kill the monsters." Right, and uh, basically, what happens is uh, he thinks that he can neutralize the uh, the silver stuff by electrocuting it, but really, what that does is it coagulates it into this giant monster that looks straight out of a Roger Corman movie. Like, it yeah. looks like the Beast with a Million Eyes. Uh, and it gets bigger and bigger the more Silver Stuff gets uh, electrocuted. Uh, once she gets killed trying to get revenge on her own death, uh, which is a weird concept, uh, <laughs> she bleeds onto the monster, and it's revealed that blood is its weakness. Yeah. And that's what kills it. Uh, which is very strange, because if you're going to eat someone's flesh off their bone, you're going to be exposed to blood. So that seems kind of like oxymoronic almost, that well, this thing that eats flesh would die from exposure to blood. Maybe the microbes were able to eat the flesh and, and leave the blood somehow, uh, but then they go underneath the blood and they, they pick apart the, I don't know, maybe on a microbial level it works, but uh, <laughs> not not when you're a, a coagulated monster. When, when you become that monster, then I guess you are vulnerable. I'm looking oh, into see, this a little, a little too deeply, but... Uh, that's my guess, is what they're no, going at, scientifically, I guess. And the strange thing was, even after the doctor threatens the the couple, you know, uh, Hank Murdoch or whatever his name is, uh, uh, Chest Rockwell or whatever, and, then, uh, and the other woman, uh, which that's her name, the other woman. Chesty uh, LaRue. Chesty LaRue, yeah, they're the Chest couple. They, um, uh, He threatens them with a gun, then he kills their friend in front of them, and then they're like, hey, let's create something together to kill this monster, because that's important first. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to team up with the scientist guy. Screw him. He just tried to kill us all, you know? And yeah. the scientist guy is like, suddenly interested in, no, let's come up with this. 
weapon. And they come up with a giant syringe or something that right. they're going <laughs> to just stab the monster with and inject with their blood. And then, and then he turns on them again after he turned on them the first time and, ex- and explains the Nazi stuff. And uh, I, <laughs> I was like, y- you guys didn't see this coming? I guess they thought he, his gun was no, was no longer loaded, so they, they had nothing to worry about. But, you know, I think he revealed that he had more bullets, right? Uh, yeah, I think he was probably stashing bullets in his pocket or something like that. Something really, like, <laughs> uh, anticlimactic. Just yeah. like, oh, yeah, I have more bullets. That, that, that would be my only problem with the movie is that it kind of ended twice. <laughs> you know, it really should have ended with the movie star accidentally falling to her death, stabbing the monster with her blood, and then they go, they they say something like, and then a little fight with the scientist guy, and then the couple looks on like she sacrificed herself for us, or some <laughs> some Ed Wood style ending like that. Instead, they had it go on and see. I like it that it goes on because what it does is it um sort of. I think the movie gets gradually more and more ridiculous. Like, earlier we were talking about the, the picked clean skeleton, and it felt kind of, like, generic. Like, these characters are very generic. Yeah. And then the gore makes it ridiculous, and then the Nazi stuff makes it even more ridiculous. Then you get the the Corman monster, which is very ridiculous. <laughs> but after she kills it, uh, they end up electrocuting more silver stuff in the water, and it creates this, like gigantic monster that's like the size of the island itself like it's so big yeah and i think that's like i think i would miss that if it wasn't there that second like gigantic that's, monster that's true that's true it reminded me of 10 cloverfield lane at the very <laughs> very end when it's revealed that spoiler. in fact spoiler <laughs> aliens have in fact landed and they're attacking and one alien in particular has it is attacking mary elizabeth winstead and she has to throw like a molotov cocktail into its mouth or anus or whatever right. and uh <laughs> and it's this long extended sequence that i mean it, it in my opinion doesn't drag but certainly is an extra uh bit of dessert on top of this heavy movie of uh you know, of drama and uh, tension and everything. And, and in the flesh eaters, that's kind of what happens is the second ending happens. They, they kill the scientists or they're about to kill the scientists, but then Chuck Speedman goes up to the, uh, or tug Speedman. I'm sorry. Or I'm sorry. Uh, what's his real name? Doesn't matter. Captain America. <laughs> he, uh, he gets his syringe. He's got his scuba gear on. Cause that's going to protect him from microbial flesh eating creatures, I guess. And uh, I didn't think scuba gear was that tough. Um, but anyways, he goes up to it, and he's, like, slowly going up to it. And, the spe- and we see the King Kong special effect, you know, where it's like a um, – they film him on a on like a – I don't know if they used blue screen back then, but they use some kind of screen technology, and then they shoot the monster separately, and then they uh, superimpose it onto, uh, onto the, the, the negative. And uh, that – I will agree, while it was a second ending to me, it would have been missed had it not been in there. Yeah, I just really like the ambition of that moment, because um, everything is so small, and like you said earlier, like the monster's very vague. Yeah. So for me to like pull out this giant, like, this is what you were probably expecting, this is your giant Godzilla-sized monster, to pull that out in the last minute and then immediately get rid of it, I really liked that aspect of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, uh, definitely. I, I, I guess it was a go big or go home kind of moment, you know. Like, right. like we we spent some money on this movie. Let's give them some. Let's give them a show at the end, you know. 
So. Well, uh, speaking of the money, uh, there's just like a couple little like weird production details I really like. Um, the, the original version of the movie was released in 1962, uh, and then they they released it two years later in '64, uh, a second time with some footage removed. Uh, and part of the problem with the distribution was just that they had no money. Like you can tell watching this movie, that it's a very cheap affair. Like the cast is small, the sets are cheap. Um, and the reason that it's so, like, it's such like a passion project in that respect was that it was funded off the game show earnings of the director's wife. She, she was on some like uh, '60s game show that no one, nobody remembers, oh, uh, wow. and won enough money to fund this like horror movie that her husband wanted to make. That's kind of uh, that's kind of noble, I think. As a, as a film buff myself, I mean that's that's. I mean, I don't know if I would spend my money making this, but. Uh, I would probably put it aside and try to save it a little bit, but maybe that's what they did. They took a portion of it and you know did this, but um, I, I could I could totally see doing that, like someone doing that and congratulating them and shaking their hand. Yeah, like, like I think that's that's totally a cool thing to do. Yeah, and, and horror movies are a good way for someone with that amount of money to to break in and find a quick audience. Um, and I, you see a lot of like small budget directors go for that. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, the second time they released it in 64, uh, to help promote it, what they did was they did this sort of William Castle gimmick where they handed out packets of instant blood uh, to audience members um, so that if you happen to get attacked by some flesh eaters while you're in the audience, you just pour some instant blood on them oh. uh, to, to, to get them to go away, I guess. Did they, did they ever have like a flesh-eating monster come in there and try to scare people? <laughs> kind of like in uh, Joe Dante's matinee? Yeah, yeah, uh, it's definitely that same gimmick. I, 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 <laughs> I doubt they uh, had little silver stuff crawling all over people's legs in the theater. <laughs> they just, they just shine the the lights of the theater on them. And, like, oh no, it's the lights. They're coming. Yeah, I guess that was on the ushers with the flashlights <laughs> to, to pick up the slack. Or they get um, Christmas lights or something. Yeah. Is there any uh, sort of like final thoughts on the film you wanted to uh, put out there before we wrapped it up? I'm, I'm just glad that this was on YouTube. Uh, because and for free, uh, not so much that I wouldn't pay for it. I think I would totally pay for this uh, if a Blu-ray ever came out, like a restoration. Mm-hmm. This was actually well restored, looking. It was the, the the version I saw looked pretty clean. But if there was an official version with like a commentary or some kind of behind the scenes stuff going on on it, or at, or at the very least trailers for other films that came out of that era i would totally buy it uh this this is this was a complete surprise i had never heard of this movie before um this podcast and in preparation for it and in learning about it and finally watching it i was uh wholeheartedly uh impressed and uh taken aback by it even there was one shot in the movie that i really liked that was um uh and there were a lot of shots but there was one shot in particular where a German scientist has his gun pointed at both the uh, at the couple, and the couple's far away on top of a little hill, and he's mm-hmm. and the camera is is the point of view of the gun. Yeah, and a little I, hardcore Henry moment. Yeah, I know, right? I thought, I thought, oh my goodness, they they thought of that back then. You know, that's that's pretty interesting. I know silent film uh, filmmakers used to do similar things, but this was particularly impressive for B filmmakers to do. I thought. They, they... There's a couple. There's a couple more shots like that. There's a, a shot of I think the leading man, uh, or maybe it's the scientist. It's one of the two guys. Uh, they're on the beach, uh, and the shot is very close up to their face. 
but uh, oh, the, the yeah. focus is deep enough that uh, the couple walking behind him, you see them in just as much focus. And it's like, am I watching an art movie? Yeah, it was, like I it, thought I was watching trash. It was a good scene. That that was that was a uh, Tug Speedman. Uh, the cl- it was a close up <laughs> of him. He was in the corner. He was like in the left side of the frame, and on the right side was everyone in the background as they were coming towards him. And then he laments at the fact that there are monsters in the water. And then we, we the camera spins down. And we see the lights in the water and then the sand and everything. And he's like, we got a problem. You know, it was it was like a Jurassic Park moment or something, you know, like like along those lines where it's like, I got a bad feeling about this, you know, or Star Wars even. That, that's where they were. And I'm not comparing this to Star Wars. I'm just saying it was like it was a moment like that where, you know, uh oh, things just got serious. You know, it just ramped <laughs> up a little bit. And for that, they brought out the heavy guns in the cinematography. They actually did something a little clever. And uh, that was a nice uh, thing to see. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess if I wanted to say anything on the way out, just uh, I think this is one of those movies that could be a prime candidate for like a, a good remake in that it's not perfect. But if they wanted to remake the same scenario, there's a lot of room to play with making it awesome. Uh, and if they did it, I would love to see Willem Dafoe and that German scientist you know, uh, <laughs> sort of in that Wes Anderson comedy vibe he does usually. Like, he could go really over the top with that Nazi role. <laughs> I'm just imagining that right now, and, and I'm thinking, like, of him in the Grand Budapest Hotel where he did his Nosferatu gangster uh, impersonation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, with the teeth and everything and the haircut. Uh, he's just got that face. I mean, he's blessed with such a wonderfully intense face uh you know and he could he could totally nail that that german sexy but i don't know do you have to add an air of uh maturity to that because not that he doesn't have maturity but he's got more pronounced evil features than he does uh features of a of a kind old man uh so you'd have to find like someone with a cross between uh someone who's clearly a scientist and someone who could transform into a bad guy, you know, not <laughs> yeah. just purely a bad guy. Yeah. So that that that's a challenge for a casting director right there. Well, um, I, I don't know if that day will ever come. I highly <laughs> doubt it. Uh, <laughs> it's just a weird thought. Um, <laughs> so uh, that about wraps it up for this time. Uh, definitely want to have you back on soon. Uh, yeah. The next episode. I, I can't wait. I know we're uh, we got some plans for the next episode and. Uh, I'm already in early preparation or re-preparation for that uh, based on the suggestions you've thrown out. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to come back. Sounds awesome, man. Um, And if you wanted to watch Flesh Eaters, uh, like Bill said, it is on free on YouTube. Uh, You can also get a slightly uh, more cleaned-up version on VOD for, I I believe, about $5 or $4. Um, So it is very widely available, and it is definitely a surprising watch if you're into that Corman B-Picture kind of fandom area. So, uh, enjoy. This laboratory has been locked since the day Andre died. Just as he left it. The equipment. All smashed. Yes, he did it. In a blind rage to destroy the machine he created because it destroyed him. He 
destroyed him and your mother because he ventured into areas of knowledge where man is not meant to go. Well, that's pure superstition. There are no areas of knowledge where man is not meant to go. Fifty years ago, stupid people said man was not meant to fly. Father did research in the transmission of molecular structures. I know that. Just tell me what happened. Very well, Philippe, I will tell you. Yes, it's true. Andre did do research in the transmission of matter. The device you see lying shattered there was built to prove his theory that solid, three-dimensional molecular structures can be transmitted instantaneously through space, much in the same way as a television image is. But a television image is merely an electronic representation of light and shadow. Andre's machine actually disintegrated the molecules of solid matter and then reintegrated them again in a different place. Eventually, Andre gained such confidence in his machine that he put himself through the disintegration integration process. He successfully transmitted himself. Then on a tragic second attempt, something went wrong. Unwittingly, he found himself in the disintegrator chamber, but he was not alone. With him was a fly. The result was a creature with the body of Andre Delande, and the arm and the head of a fly. And now it's time for our feature conversation. I am recording in a kitchen in 7th Ward, New Orleans, over Skype with a friend from the internet named Dustin Kosky. Uh, Hello. <laughs> there's Dustin. Uh, we're about to talk about all five versions of the movie The Fly that have come out since 1958. Uh, Dustin is a writer from what, what, what website was that again? Chilling Tales, the podcast. Chilling Tales, the podcast. Uh, this is going to be a uh, a trip through a very particular horror franchise that's seen many different highs and lows, um, starting with 1958. Adapted from the short story by George Lagellan, uh, a Vincent Price horror movie in which Vincent Price does not play the mad scientist, and the movie itself is a murder mystery instead of a straight-up mad scientist horror film. What did you think of the original The Fly, Dustin? I think it holds up... might not be like quite the 1950s classic that uh, you get with The Day the Earth Stood Still because I'm not really finding it quite so resonant on a thematic level. And uh, I think the climax is kind of s- silly beyond the special effects and the and the audio, but we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, I was just kind of surprised every time I watched this that what you expect versus like what a 50s audience expects is completely off like you know up front that this woman killed her husband and then the movie sort of winds back in like a flashback framing device for you to figure out why she killed him but as like a modern audience you know that it's because he turned into some kind of strange hybrid monster Probably the advertising even back in the day gave away why. Yeah, really. And uh, I, I wonder how well of an, uh, how, how well known the short story uh, source material was even. Like, people might have even known from that. 
I don't know. I don't. I think by the 1950s, uh, sort of science fiction and print was wasn't quite so ghettoized, but I don't think it would have been too mainstream. So I doubt your average viewer is very familiar with the story. Right, and I, I, the theater. Do you think that was kind of the same thing with like a lot, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes? Like, yes, uh, definitely. Yeah, it sort of popularized sort, sort of that um, that ghetto of genre literature. Um, but I guess the main mystery of the movie, then, if you know where it's going, is why she uh, presses this button to operate a a literal press uh, to kill her husband. Why she pressed it twice is the I guess is the main mystery. Kind of an anticlimactic answer. <laughs> True enough. Whoops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is why she did. <laughs> well, uh, I guess the uh, she basically just should have crushed him with his arm on the press in the first place, and was covering up her tracks because the uh, human fly hybrid at the end of this tale is literally just a man with a fly's head and a fly's arm, but otherwise he's just a human specimen. Right. Um. Do you see anything from this uh, source material that would maybe lead to the Cronenberg uh, version that came in the 80s, which I guess is the much more popular version at this point? I guess uh, kind of the fact it focuses more on the emotions of the couple and that uh, sense of drama and tension than it does on the hardware of the science. I mean... Obviously, this isn't too plausible what's going on anyway, but it's. But I think sort of the thing in uh, a lot of 1950s stuff was people just got so giddy about the technology that they would kind of tend to throw bland characters in there. Right. Um, and yeah, there is a, a romantic uh, through line through all five of these movies where there's always some kind of romantic push and pull. Uh, but yeah, this one and the Cronenberg one, I, I think, have like the strongest sort of romantic uh, plot to them. Um, yeah, definitely. I guess uh, as far as the uh, science goes, we should explain briefly just that these flies, these fly people, are being created uh, through a tel- uh, teleportation device that's not quite perfected. Um, atoms are rearranged, and then uh, what are they? Uh, I'm trying to think of the word he uses. Uh, they're disassembled and then reassembled on the opposite end of the room in a separate device. Uh, and it works fine on on uh, still objects, but whenever they try to do it on um, living objects, that's when uh, these sort of disgusting monsters are created. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see any sort of um, paranoia or reason why people were scared Paran- of this? Paranoia? Yeah, like, what is the, uh... Uh, Not really, I wouldn't say... I mean, it's not like he's forcing people into the machine, so I don't think the average person would fear that I'm going to be put in that thing. (laughs) Exactly, like, it's, uh... Like, if you think of uh, movies like Them or Godzilla or something like that, there's, there's like, an atomic fear. I'm I'm just wondering where, like, this, uh... This fear of this rapidly advancing technology is coming from, other than that it's new and difficult to understand. Mm. Well, I'll, I, nah, probably, nah. No. <laughs> well, um, something I did, I did appreciate was the, uh, sort of gradual nature of, um, the guy slowly turning into the fly. Uh, even though I, I guess we know where it's going, it, it's, it happens in stages. You don't exactly understand why 
she's driven crazy by these flies or why he covers his head with a shroud until you see that full like Halloween costume at the end where he has like the one arm and the big fly head. Mm-hmm. Actually, something that caught me off guard was the part with the cat because that wouldn't have been spoiled in uh, just the title and all that. That cat that sort of just disappears into the ether and he looks around trying to find it and then he sort of hears a meow from... Uh, empty space. <laughs> that that really creeped me out. Just the thought of somehow being disassembled and yet still uh, aware. Although maybe that, if that literally happened in the scene, it wasn't somehow like just symbolic or something. I feel like they they get more into that idea in the sequel as well. Uh, just the idea of being disassembled. And then not immediately be brought back. Like, where are you? What's going on? Um, that's definitely like hinted at here, but not really explored very thoroughly. Yeah. Well, we we've got a like I said, it's not too focused on the technology. It's more about the characters and their emotions. Right. Um, and also uh, the the animal um, aspect that he does transport a a cat and a guinea pig in this first one, but um, you don't really get into like an animal torture vibe here uh but it is further explored in the in the in the entries that followed it yeah um and i guess the uh the if i'm gonna try to pull into the cronenberg thing like why maybe a young cronenberg would be excited by the body horror in this you don't really get that until the final moment when he's in the fly uh in the spider web about to be eaten that's a pretty horrific image yeah, I guess, but I, I don't know that that high-pitched, famous "Help me" really doesn't do the scene any favors. <laughs> yeah, it is a little goofy, and I, I guess Vincent Price is sort of prone to these um, sort of campier horror pictures. But I, I, I like that aspect that you can kind of chuckle at that moment, even though the the abject horror in his face is pretty uh, pretty affecting at the same time. Something that struck me as odd about that is that that scene basically happens kind of as far as the story is concerned after it matters. Because uh, Delambre himself has been crushed under the hydraulic press, so they can't really restore him or... So it's just worrying about a fly with his head on it. Well, I think the personality has been transferred at that point too, right? Because the... uh... At some point, they're like their two personalities are in a in between state where the uh, human body with the fly head is still trying to have rational thoughts, and then he has that moment with the chalkboard where he starts writing "kill fly, kill fly," and that's like the transfer moment. And love you and all that. Right, right, right. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, at the end, obviously, is like his his personality stuck in that body, but they don't want him to live. They just smash him with a rock. Well, especially not if a Spider's about to suck him dry. <laughs> yeah, I guess he's sort of a... Uh, it's, it's a lost cause at that point. Mercy killing. <laughs> so I'm kind of gathering this wasn't your favorite uh, movie on this list. It wasn't... Uh, it, it did all right for itself, but no, it's not my favorite. <laughs> you, can, you can probably guess my favorite for already. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it'd be crazy to pick any other one, I think. Um... <laughs> So, uh, rush to production a year after that was the Return of the Fly in 1959, um, which 
really is just a quicker version of the same story, except that you have uh, Delambre's kid is the uh, is the the fly scientist picking up his dad's work, um, and the only thing they really changed was they made his head bigger. That's about it. Well, and I think he's kind of forced into it this time, so it does seem a little more that paranoia that you mentioned. I think that is here this time, although it's a criminal that's forcing people into the machine instead of the scientist. Right, yeah. So, like, uh, the first two are kind of crime thrillers, right? So you have trying to figure out why the wife crushed the husband in the first one. And -hmm. in this one, you have this undercover British criminal who forces him into the machine by gunpoint. Yeah. Um, It's weird to think of these movies as crime thrillers, though, instead of, like, a horror film. I guess. You've got to do... I think it might have been that crime thrillers were just slightly more respectable at the time. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. I mean, uh... or a way for people to ease themselves into a genre they weren't too familiar with. Yeah, because this is like after the fall of like the Universal horror era, uh, so I guess it was a little easier to sell it as like kind of like a st- um, a-, a murder mystery. But I-, I don't know if there was any mystery to this one so much as to like, nope. <laughs> no, it's pretty straightforward. Who's doing these things and why? I guess yeah. if they didn't include those scenes where he's loading people and <laughs> animals into these teleportation devices, it might be kind of creepy and whatnot, but it would be pretty disorienting to not know who stuck Delambre in his teleporter. Yeah, like, uh, I, I guess the um, the main plot is that he's trying to steal the plans for the teleporter, which makes sense because it would be like a very... Um, it would be a very good financial move to have the first run of these uh, transporters, even though they're not working correctly. Um, but once you know that – once they reveal that he is an undercover criminal and then he's, like, selling out his lab mate, there's really no other territory for it to go other than to see someone turn into a monster. Right, and it's <laughs> uh, kind of a tragic monster in that I, I think I saw him a few times wa- – while he was running when he was in fly mode, he had to hold on to the fly uh, prosthetic on top of his head. <laughs> yeah, because they made it so like cartoonishly big. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and yeah, like the little help me cries you were talking about earlier, they come a lot earlier in this film. Uh, oh, yeah. And you can hear it like distinctly of this tiny fly. And it should be buzzing, but instead you just hear a little help me, help me. Well, I guess they felt they needed to personify it so that um, there would be some reassurances that they'd actually catch the thing this time and possibly save the day. Right. Instead of this being another tragedy. Yeah, they, they do uh, come to a happy ending where he ends up uh, restoring his human self, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> well, they do... Re- they do try to redeem themselves a little bit on that point in the third one, but that's for later. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I guess before we move on to that, I'd like—I just like to say that there is one moment of this movie that I thought was pretty horrific, and it's when uh, the the criminal uh, transfers a cop and a guinea pig in the same transporter. Yes, those hands, those are <laughs> much creepier than they should be. Almost creepier than the fly thing for some reason. 
Yeah, the fly is so cartoonish because the head is so big. Because uh, apparently the transporter now malfunctions and causes gigantism. Um, but with the cop and the guinea pig, pretty <laughs> much their their DNA doesn't even transfer at all. It's just their literal hands are swapped. Yeah, but like human hands turned into uh, paws. They just look very, very deformed instead of like another species somehow. So it's kind of got an uncanny valley effect as opposed to something you can't really relate to or imagine. Yeah, I, I agree. And then and then to see uh, the hamster with human hands, uh, you almost want to laugh at it, but then immediately it's like squashed under a foot and they like make that moment count in these really gross like bone crushing sounds. Yeah. Uh, so they do find a way to make it creepy in a moment that could have been really goofy. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, I'm listening. Sorry. I'm done. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, <laughs> this is not like a – it's a very slight uh, sequel. Like, it's a pretty much by-the-books monster movie sequel. It has its moments. Well, a moment. Is that the hamster moment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like that they tried uh, to accentuate some ideas from the first one, like the animal test subjects – are a little more um, fleshed out, as and what you were saying earlier about them like sort of leaving someone out in the ether before bringing them back. They they sort of drag that out as much as possible here, which is interesting. Yeah, but at least it was more of a uh, direct sequel to what we had seen in the film before than the Curse of the Fly, which came out six years later in 1965. That is pretty much unrecognizable as a The Fly movie other than the teleportation device. Yeah, that's going to happen when you don't stick a fly head on anybody. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the, most, um, the most interesting thing they do in this whole film is there's one shot where they transport a few cops at the same time on purpose, and then when they rematerialize, they're just this disgusting... Uh, sort of Cronenbergian mess of limbs and flesh. Uh, but that's like 10 seconds in a otherwise just slog of a sequel that has nothing to do with the two movies that came before it. It has a weird start, though. I was not expecting anything like the fact that the movie starts with uh, the with Patricia, the romantic interest for the scientist main character, breaking out of an insane asylum. Yeah, that's such a weird... It, it almost feels like a French New Wave moment or something, because the, the, the broken glass flies at the screen in the opening shot, and then this woman in her underwear climbs out the window, and I just don't even know what to do with the movie at that point. And I'm not sure I ever get on the wavelength after that. I don't know if I could buy any movie that has a woman breaking out of an insane asylum, no matter what you do with it after that, let alone putting it into a sci-fi story. <laughs> And they completely undo the story of the first two movies, where Delambre survives the first film, he has two children instead of one, I can barely tell which people are playing who in the movie, uh, Vincent Price isn't involved, like, I almost feel like this was made to be a completely different film, they just kind of stuck the fly name on top of it. But, what's, uh, but you mentioned uh, Cronenbergian horror, where the cops are merged together, What's surprising to me is that this one that this one feels like one that he took a lot of ideas from, like the idea of instead of for the 1986 film, 
like the fact that it messes him up on a genetic level so that he has this absurd <laughs> affliction instead of a fly's head as a result of having the gene of having the uh Delambre, I mean. Right. Has these fly genes that are causing him to age very, very unnaturally instead of he has a fly's head or a fly's hand that he keeps secret from people. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And they have all these um, extra victims who were, like, uh, used in the experiments. Um, now there is your paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that these scientists would try out uh, radical modes of transportation on you and just leave you as, like, a disfigured um, monster in a basement, pretty much locked up, away from the world. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree that this is more of the Cronenbergian film... But I don't I don't understand how it fits into the the franchise. It it doesn't. <laughs> Short answer. I mean, j- just the fact that the main character is the kind of person who leaves uh, bunches of deformed test subjects in his wake makes him more of a cartoonish mad scientist to me than a relatively real person, which was what they were, which is what I felt like they were going for in their earlier Fly movies. True, and, and you have three scientists here who are um, spearheading this technology and keeping these people deformed and hostage. Uh, who are you supposed to root here for? I, I guess the the uh, insane asylum woman? Yeah, because we saw her in her underwear. So <laughs> maybe if she stays alive, it, that's okay. We could see her in her underwear again. <laughs> well, no, no luck there. Um, not I that I remember. Uh, although I... I, I I will say I kind of spaced out at least halfway into this, where I just wasn't even like paying attention very close to the details. I must admit I laughed out loud when I found out that he has that aging disease that r- requires him to be on the drug. Because I was thinking, is this, did this inspire the movie Jack? <laughs> that is a valid question. Uh, why would Francis Ford Coppola ever make Jack? That was, that was the director, right? Ka-ching. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's as good of an answer as any I've ever heard why he would make that movie. That man had a lot of debts from his 80s bombs. Fair, fair enough. Um, <laughs> was, uh, oh, I don't even get into that. I have a few questions about that. I'm going to have to do some uh, looking up. Um. But yeah, it, it's kind of weird to like have a, a sequel just completely undo the backstory that came before it. It's uh, it's got these kind of nauseating wide-angle lens pans across like a science lab where you see all these bleep bloop machines that don't really do anything. Um, it's just like a hard movie to look at and to follow. Uh, and at the end, it, it asks you like, "Is this the end?" I was just thinking to myself, like, I fucking hope so. Like, I never need to see anything like this again. Really, the end should have come uh, before. <laughs> the answer is no, this is not the end. The end of Return of the Fly was the end. <laughs> yeah, there's really, like, no need, if, if you have any interest in watching these films, to to visit Curse of the Fly. And I think it, uh, I think they kind of knew that. It was never released on VHS, uh... Or Laserdisc, it, it kind of went straight to DVD, like, on a, um, on a collection of, like, the first three films. So, so no one really was, like, hankering to see this film after it, after it first premiered. 
it really all it's got to offer is that it's kind of loopy and it's surprising and it goes in some somewhat surprising directions and it's kind of good from a curiosity standpoint that it had a surprising amount of influence apparently on the Cronenberg movie but no it's definitely not essential viewing for the series and that um that rapidly aging thing you were talking about as well that that comes up uh, pretty heavily in the fly too uh it's like kind of the main plot point. So and it's, it's still kind of silly. Oh, it's very silly. Um, but yeah, maybe it influenced uh, better art, but for the most part, you could just completely ignore it. Um, and then obviously the uh, franchise took a two decade hiatus uh, after that um, until Cronenberg's 1986 film uh, sort of reinvented the first one into a completely new story and became the disgusting special effects uh horror romance that it is um i i I will say that i watched this for the first time for this conversation Uh, i don't know how i had avoided it for so long but it is it is quite a work yeah i i only saw pretty recently too i don't know why he's one of those directors where like i have a few of his movies like in probably my best of all times like at least video drone and i still like have a large amount of stuff to catch up with with him. I guess it's something to do with the fact he's kind of a cold and distant filmmaker who doesn't make... who makes movies that are kind of fun, but that are too, don't pull so much on the heartstrings, so he feels like somebody you watch out of respect instead of necessarily pleasure. Yeah, it's it's kind of an ordeal every time you watch it. Like I, I, don't, I've, I really liked uh, Maps to the Stars from last year. But I don't think I would return to it that often. Like, I think once or twice is probably enough for a lifetime for that kind of movie. Yeah, I ha- I've certainly haven't uh, seen um, Dead Ringers since I saw <laughs> Yeah, but those, uh, those like, gynecological instruments from that movie kind of stick in your mind, even though you don't want to return to them. They kind of live with you. Definitely, and some of the creepy conversations, even what that they have as kids. But anyway... Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, well, back to the fly. <laughs> well, I, I think if you're gonna call him like a cold uh, filmmaker and a cold storyteller, uh, there is a passionate erotic censor to this film between uh, Jeff Goldblum's scientist um, character. I think his name's Doctor Grundle. Brundle, Brundle? Yeah. Seth Brundle. Seth Brundle, and then Gina Davis is like a reporter who um, is in on the ground floor in his new discovery about the transportation. Um, and they do have a passionate erotic center uh, that makes like the transformation horror of the second half uh, sting a little bit more than it would otherwise. Yeah, definitely. Especially that. As I especially like the fact that she has uh, sort of another male admirer who uh, is a coworker who isn't a villain. He isn't. I mean, it isn't like they're trying to make Seth Brundle extra likable by making this guy bad. No, this other guy, this competitor, is completely right about him. That he's uh, dangerous and crazy. And he genuinely tries to help Gina Davis uh, during the climax. That's the impression I get. Yeah, actually, they kind of, like, switch positions. Because in the beginning, I mean, this man's her co-worker, right? It's like her editor at the magazine. Um, he's he starts off kind of as the jerk, so he kind of breaks into her apartment. He's got this invasion of privacy thing, 
Um, and somewhere in the movie, that turns into general concern for her well-being, while uh, Brundle himself becomes uh, more and more of a threat as he transforms into this inhuman monster. Evolution and change. (laughs) Seems appropriate with the sort of uh, biology and gene-obsessed movies that we've got going, that there'd be evolution. (laughs) Some kind. Some kind. And uh, I I guess the uh, main difference between this one and the original that I saw, um, except for like on a production level, is just that uh, as he's turning into the fly, it starts off as kind of like a... um, a positive change on his body. Like, he becomes a better, more athletic human being at first. Yeah, although he's got that weird thing where he has to eat sugar. (laughs) In a way, I think would be pretty much automatically off-putting. Oh, yeah, it it is off-putting. And he does have kind of like a coked-out energy to him from all the sugar, I'm supposing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where it's kind of hard to, like, look at him because his eyes are kind of darting all over the place. But you can see how he could be... Um... Well, he was always kind of eccentric. Oh, that's true. He, uh, he wears the same outfit every day. Uh, he doesn't seem to talk to anyone outside uh, his apartment. Yeah. Davis, uh, Gina Davis was the first other person he talked to, so of course it was going to be a romance. <laughs> yeah, his lovemaking gets better once he turns into the Brundlefly as well. That's true to life. <laughs> Is that from experience? Uh, second hand. <laughs> I've heard it counts. Third, fourth, fifth, and sixth hand, too. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I will say that the uh, the nightmare aspect of being um, transformed into something other than human is definitely fully realized here. Like, it is in full swing. Um, that dream sequence where she gives birth to a giant maggot is fucking disgusting. Uh... It, his final form is so grotesque. Yeah, especially when his face splits in half. I guess it, it it always should have been gradual in the original fly, although I don't know if there necessarily was the technology or the running time for that. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would want it. Like, I like that shroud the original uh, scientist wears where you don't know exactly what's lurking under it. Um it's a good way of getting around what probably would have been sort of lackluster effects at the time. Gives this sort of phantom of, phantom of the opera appeal. Yeah, it's like, I, I, I like that anticipation of like, what exactly is under that hood? Although, somebody being half fly, half, in between the fly head and the human head, that's so much worse than just the fly head. <laughs> True enough. And uh, that, that is something interesting that this movie sort of got rid of, is in the original, um, there's two bodies, right? Like, there's the fly body with the human head and the human head with the fly body. Or I probably just be- <laughs> said the same thing twice. But in this one, they combine uh, the two bodies into one thing, and their genetics are actually, like, uh, combined more thoroughly uh, to where it's this one grotesque monster that's neither human nor fly-like. Like, if you saw the final monster in this movie, it's not like... A fly would be the first thing that came to your mind. No, it would not be. I guess they didn't want. They wanted to make damn sure that the studio didn't order them to do another "help me, help me" thing. <laughs> well, yeah. Instead of help, he wants to start a new family with his his new uh, beloved 
He wants her to become a fly person as well. Uh. <laughs> I've never felt a woman's pain quite like that. The oh, idea of birthing something uh, from this thing's genetic material. And that's something they uh, accentuate very strongly at the beginning of the, the sequel to this film, is that, yeah. that horror of the birth. And it's kind of crazy that this was a hit movie. Like, it made, I think it made $40 million on a $9 million budget in the 80s, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things we consider classic horror movies from the time tended to bomb in my, what I remember, like, the thing certainly bombed. I don't think, like, um, American Werewolf in London did very well. I think that was supposed to have been kind of a failure. So I, I don't know what... I know his Videodrome and a lot of Cronenberg's other uh, movies from the 80s weren't too successful. So I don't know what the magic touch was with this one. Yeah, and this one did well, like, critically, too. Like, it won, um, it won an Academy Award for Makeup... And critics actually really liked it, which when you were talking about, like, The Thing earlier, I think that one had, like, a long road to its, like, critical success as, like, the greatest horror ever. Um, that wasn't an immediate reaction, but this one had a pretty strong out-the-gate reaction. Yeah, I guess it just goes to show that it's sometimes better to be, like, second, to let, like, The Thing soften everybody up so right. that they're more used to, oh, okay, this is a much... Okay, now we have much slimier and more disgusting latex horror movies instead of. <laughs> and it's kind of a genre I guess Cronenberg owns. Like I, I think of Carpenter as a much more eclectic um, director from the era, uh, where like if I think of Carpenter, The Thing isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to mind, even though it's probably my favorite movie from him because he has such a wide range of genres he works in. Whereas like body horror latex transformations you either think of Cronenberg or maybe Rick Baker but those are like the only two uh, names that come up to mind immediately yeah pretty much uh, maybe Stan Winston but probably not immediately right um so yeah uh, I, I think this is pretty much undeniably the most like efficient film in this list uh, it's the one where I can't really point to any like major flaws like it's pretty bare bones but Everything it does is effective and part of the story and sticks with you in a really disgusting way. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the most recommended of the five. <laughs> and then uh, because it was so popular, it was made into a sequel three years later. Yeah, but that Cron was. <laughs> okay, this might be where we argue a little bit because I actually liked the sequel to this movie. Oh. Um, it was directed by Chris Wallace, who did the makeup effects in the original and you can tell that it was made by a makeup effects guy, because that is, like, the main point of this film. The only point of this film. <laughs> so, okay, this is what this is how I will defend The Fly 2, is that it feels like a kid's movie <clears throat> that just happens to have the most horrific monster makeup effects I've seen in, in, in almost any film I've ever seen. Well, like it's, it's up there in, in grossness. Well, if we're going to do that Jack thing again and have somebody grow to full adulthood while they're still their single-digit years, I guess... <laughs> that is, that that is the plot. A, yeah, that should be a kid's movie. 
Well, yeah, the first, like, 20 minutes is just this kid growing up in a lab, and you kind of, um, you kind of expect that, like, maybe a 10-year-old watching this on HBO at 3 in the morning might be the, like, ideal audience for this for this movie. Oh, that's so cool. Nobody could tell me to go to bed if I looked like a grown-up. And... <laughs> but, yeah, you don't want to think about that too much because he uh, is a grown man at, like, 5 and starts having sex with adult women yeah. and, uh... There's, there's probably the less thought you put into his his actual age versus his physical age, probably the better. Uh, too late. <laughs> well, this is uh, Eric Stoltz from uh, from Mask. He's like the main kid from the Ma- from Mask, the Cher movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also, I believe, the drug, the heroin dealer in Pulp Fiction. Is that right? Yeah, the um, I got to stab her three times, guy. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, he is a um, he is the son of the Brundle Fly from the the last movie, um, and I just said that the first twenty minutes could be mistaken for a kids' film, but I guess that's a lie because the very first scene is him being born in this disgusting maggot pod. Uh, that's one of the most horrific birth scenes I've probably ever seen in a film, and it starts at the at the opening credits of this one. It, I thought that was Gina Davis, but I found out later it was not. That they used for that scene. Yeah, there's only... uh, Found a good replacement. Yeah, the only um, actor they had return was uh, her editor from the first movie. Um, (laughs) And then there's some Jeff Goldblum... uh, Excuse me, deleted scenes from uh, the original... um, Where it's kind of these standalone interviews about the original experiments. But other than that, it's completely removed. Well, I guess it's, it's oddly appropriate for this series that <laughs> sequels should be completely disposable. Yeah, I guess it's not quite as radical of a change as uh, as uh, The Curse of the Fly. It, and, it at least somewhat resembles the story. And that it should leave you thinking, oh, poor animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that final shot, I guess we can get back to that in a minute, but uh, the, uh, the cruelty in this movie from a um people willingly torturing other living animals is brought up to a uh, ridiculous degree um this case there's in this case torturing a dog just by leaving it alive basically yeah, yeah they uh they transport this golden retriever that the son of the brundle fry has sort of um adopted for his own pet uh they transport it and it comes out just Wrong. I don't even know what to say other than wrong. It is a grotesque object that they created. It's vaguely dog-like, um, and they leave it alive for years, just just being alive and hating every minute of it. You will never be so happy that somebody is chloroforming a dog to death. As <laughs> you will be when you see that scene. It's kind of a tender moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a boy and his dog. <laughs> thing thing <laughs> i i think there's a lot of uh sadness in this film that i found really interesting like considering how goofy it comes across and like i said it does come across like a kid's movie but there's just these weird moments like uh him uh sort of glumly watching this fly zapper at a motel uh and just like watching all his fly brethren just die before his eyes <laughs> You know, when you put it like that, it actually sounds kind of silly. (laughs) 
Yeah, maybe it looked better on the screen than it, it's coming out of my mouth, but um, I I don't know. I I think as a special effects showcase and as like a horrifically gruesome kids movie, this kind of works. I it kind of got on my nerves that they made it less about a scientist's ambitions uh, and willingness to do uh, bad stuff in the pursuit of discoveries into basically an evil corporation plot. With Bartok and all that. Yeah, that was the uh, refreshing thing about the first movie, is that the uh, corporate interest is sort of hands-off. Uh, he even says, like, I have investors, but they don't even know what I'm doing, really. Um, and in this one, it's kind of a classic 80s, uh, kind of cliche, almost, where just these scientific complexes are controlled by these corporate people, and their profit over people, uh, like Reagan-era, just bullshit. Um, it's very vague. Yeah, it's so cliche even by that. <laughs> even then it was. Right. Um, but I, I do think that w- the plot isn't necessarily what you remember anyway, just because so, the creature effects are so over the top. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it that, but... Eh. Like, uh... Oh. I'm listening. No, no, I'm listening. <laughs> I just like that the Martin fly, uh, which is, is their answer to the Brundle fly, they allow him more time to run havoc uh, once he reaches his final form. And it's kind of like this weird alien uh, sequel where you care about the xenomorph. You know, like it's kind of like a weird bastardization of what a monster movie is. I, I never felt for the xenomorphs. <laughs> Even when they tried to slap a humanoid face on one of them, I just... <laughs> At, at the sight of the thing instead of aww <laughs> you don't feel for Martin at all in that final phase when he's when he's getting his revenge on the uh, the, comp, the, the evil corporate complex not really because it's kind <laughs> of a rote revenge on straw men it's just, it just doesn't work for me I can see that and and even his romance with uh, a worker at the complex is oh very, just cut like... that out of the movie entirely <laughs> I cannot shove it to the back of my mind that this is a very underage protagonist in a romance. (laughs) She gets over it very quickly, though. She's okay with him being a child. She should be the one in the insane asylum, not Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there was a third one planned that was supposed to follow that trajectory where she gets locked up for falling in love with the Martin fly. Just on principle, that not necessarily that she was diagnosed with the disorder. They were just like, you were interested in that prison. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory death sentence. <laughs> at least, at, she should at least be listed as a sex offender. Yeah. It's what she deserves. So, <laughs> so um... I'd say this is this series has a better ratio of hits to misses than a lot of more popular franchises do. Yeah, the only one I was really hostile towards was The Curse of the Fly. The rest I'm glad I saw. At least Curse of the Fly I, has uh, some ideas, even if it doesn't have anybody with a fly's head on or much for that good of special effects. That That grotesque pile of different people... Combined into one creature, I think is one of the more affecting images in any of these movies. So I'll at least give it that. Yeah. Um, but I will say that I think the Fly Two 
if any of these are supposed to be like uh, kind of like a cult classic contender, the one from 1989 I think could possibly uh, live on in infamy <laughs> a little more than the sequels to the original one. Right. Uh, most of the rest, are, uh, two of the rest are just classics. This one has to settle for cult classic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, as a qualifier at the beginning of it. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to um, tack on to this conversation? Uh, just wanted to say, be sure to check out Chilling Tales on iTunes and <laughs> YouTube at user slash Chilling Tales WI, all one word. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thank, well, thank you, you for, for having me. This was fun and these movies were interesting. Yeah, this was a good binge watch. Uh, they were varied enough so that it was not like watching the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. I will give them that. Uh, but also thank you for dealing with this experiment in Skype technology where uh, the delay is a little disorienting. Um, <laughs> I hope it was. Uh, <laughs> I'm making it more awkward now than it already was. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe we'll have you back on for something uh, down the line. Uh, maybe a little less... Um, a little less dumb. <laughs> Maybe I'll meet James. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, fool's errand trying to get all three of us on the mic today. Eh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Dustin Kosky. You. See you later. Bye. <laughs>